What a customer was eating five years ago is completely different now. So you've got to stay sharp on that market front. Because food waste really starts at the farm and then it finishes at the end of a scraped plate. This is the Food and Beverage Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. Hope you're hungry. Let's dig in. All right, welcome to the third episode of the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of the show. We've got a jam-packed show full of some really awesome content for you today. I can't wait to get started and for you to hear this. Our first interview today is going to be with John Wood. He's the co-founder and director of Kitchen Cut. Uh, He's going to talk about safe practices for kitchens and restaurants when it comes to food allergies. We've really seen an explosion uh, in terms of the number of people that have food allergies these days, whether it's uh, to nuts or to gluten or dairy, or some of the other products that are around. So we're going to talk about some of the safe practices for kitchens as they try to make sure that nobody uh, is negatively affected by these allergies uh, when it comes to restaurants. So how can you best prepare your staff? How can you uh, prepare your kitchen? How can you make sure there's no cross-contamination? That sort of thing. John's going to join us to talk about that. Then we're going to talk to Jeff Richards. He's the CEO and founder of Muwala. He's going to talk about plant-based milk products and that sort of thing. It's going to be a really interesting interview with Jeff Richards as well as we kind of stay in that same vein of uh, talking about people who are maybe lactose intolerant, something along those lines, uh, you know, keeping it with that same theme there as far as food allergies go. We're also going to talk to one of our writers here at MarketScale, Emily Shai, who wrote a really great article on food waste. She talked about how the global food problem isn't so much a shortage of production, but it is a uh, it is a large amount of waste that is causing a food shortage around the world. So as we look towards exploding populations and down the road, how are we going to feed everyone in the world? Well, the problem isn't so much do we have enough food, it's are we using it correctly. So that's all coming up on the show today. But first, we're going to kick it all off with Sam Mosier in your Market Scale Food and Beverage News Minutes coming up next. These are your food and beverage news minutes brought to you by MarketScale. The alcohol industry is male-dominated. Recent data from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission found about 80% of executives in the beverage and tobacco industry are male, and not many efforts are being made to change that. In 2017, PitchBook found only 2.2% of overall venture capital funding went to female-founded businesses. But Constellation Brands is going against the grain. Food Dive reports Constellation is investing $100 million in female-led alcohol beverage companies by 2028. The company's venture capital arm, Constellation Brands Ventures, will run the program, which is called Focus on Female Founders. Startups will be able to use the company's supply chain, distributors, and brand-building resources to help expand their reach. Constellation's first two investments are Austin Cocktails, which makes bottled craft cocktails, and Vivify Beverages, which makes hard soda. Constellation has many famous brands like Corona, Svetkova, vodka, and a variety of wine. CNN reports Constellation has products that appeal to both men and women, but this latest move will help them stay competitive in the beer market, which is looking to sell more to women. On the grocery store front, Walmart and Amazon, with its acquisition of Whole Foods, 
are often seen as the main opposing sides in the battle for future market share, but Kroger, with more than 2,000 stores, is the second largest physical retailer in the U.S., according to the National Retail Foundation. Its third quarter report shows interesting data about the company, especially its digital efforts. Food Business News reports Kroger saw a drop in net earnings going from $397 million last year to $317 million this year. Sales fell only 0.3%. But interestingly, Kroger's digital sales increased by 60% in the third quarter. Its Scan Bag Go service allows customers to use their smartphones to shop. Customers scan items as they go and then scan their phone at a checkout station before they leave. The payment is processed digitally. Payments.com reports Kroger hopes to remove the checkout system entirely in the future, so everything can be done on a customer's phone. With 400 scanned bag go stores planned before the end of the year, Kroger is ahead of Amazon and Walmart in the digital grocery age. And in fast food, after announcing the news in September, Inspire Brands has finalized its $2.3 billion acquisition of Sonic. Inspire also owns Arby's, Buffalo Wild Wings, and Rusty Taco. It is now the fifth largest U.S. restaurant company, according to Food Business News. It has more than 8,300 restaurants and more than $12 billion in annual sales. Sonic itself has more than 3,500 restaurants and $4.4 billion in sales. As reported by CNBC, Inspire is majority owned by private equity firm Rourke and was formed in February when Arby's acquired Buffalo Wild Wings. Sonic has struggled against other fast food chains in recent years as its sales have fallen the last two years. It expects an increase in the last quarter of the fiscal year due to changes to its menu. Sonic's former chairman and CEO, Jay Clifford Hudson, will be a senior advisor to the company until March 2019. Claudia San Pedro became Sonic's president in January and will become CEO now that the acquisition is complete. I'm Sam Mosier, and these have been your Market Scale Food and Beverage Minutes. All right, thanks to Sam Mosier for those market scale food and beverage news minutes. We're about to get to our interview with John Wood talking about foodborne allergens, but coming up before that, I'm going to welcome into the studio my colleague Daniel Litwin. Hey, yo. How are you today, man? You know, uh, pretty good. I am staying busy working on my shows, too. You know, we both sort of man several different shows here at Market Scale, but. It's always great when we get to collide in the studio and uh, share some time behind the mic. Exactly. We're always, uh, it's normally just kind of like a one-man operation in here in the studio. So it's always nice to have some camaraderie. I agree. Yeah. It just livens things up. We should do this more often. <laughs> yeah, I'm down. But you're actually joining the podcast for a purpose today, not just to keep me company, which is you know a very valid purpose. But uh, you deal with uh, allergies that, that that's a pretty common allergy these days, and that is to nuts. Am I right? Yeah, you know I'm not gonna say I'm like the spokesperson on nut allergies or something here, but I did want to just chime in before this feature with John Wood um, because I mean, really, what he's going to be talking about is how should restaurants manage their allergen policies? Should it be something that's on a state or even gubernatorial level? Right. Um, you know, how do you make it clear for your customers? But at the same time, like, how do you create a standard among franchisees? Like, Let's say you are a, uh, a chain restaurant. How do you make sure Little Caesars down the block and Little Caesars two miles over have the same standards, right? Exactly. And uh, I definitely struggle sometimes with, you know, does this menu item have nuts or something. I, I'm not going to name the restaurant, but I went to go grab a sandwich at a local shop um, here where we work and went to order the um, 
mm, I went to order the chicken salad sandwich. Right. Didn't say there were any nuts there. Uh, and took a big bite out of it. And of course, there were like some walnuts or pecans or something. So I only got a little bit swallowed, so I didn't die or anything. <laughs> kind of spit it back out and was like, excuse me, I can't eat this. It's not indicated on your sign anywhere that there are nuts in this. Yeah. It just says herbs. Like, <laughs> herbs are not nuts here. So Those are not the same thing. Not the same thing at all. So I sent it back. Then I ordered the pulled pork. Mm -hmm. Well, lo and behold, the freaking pulled pork sandwich also had nuts in it. It was in the coleslaw. They had pecans what? in the coleslaw. Yeah. And so. I would not have guessed that. No. And I took se several more bites before I realized. And so then the rest of the day I was sick, throwing up. It was pretty garbage. So <laughs> overall, I, uh, you know, I struggle with this issue. And what really upset me, the reason I even came in here to tell the story is because the signage at the restaurant right. had zero indication of allergens. And I'm not even the most allergic. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I hive up a little bit, throw up, and I feel kind of sickly for the next several hours. But imagine if I was an EpiPen user. Right. I mean, imagine if I was someone that even, like, even just ingesting any sort of amount of nuts would send you to the hospital or potentially kill you within minutes. And it just felt like really poor management, and they seemed pretty unaware that this was even an issue. Like, I can't be the only one ordering pulled pork and vomiting it back up because <laughs> because there are nuts in the coleslaw. So it's a very potent issue, and I'm excited that you, you sourced someone for this. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think that one of the interesting things that you also have to consider is, uh, especially at sit-down restaurants, how do you train waiters and waitresses, how do you train your wait staff to recognize specific issues, like once something is already happening, and also how do you train them to talk about people to remember to say, hey, uh, this item has nuts in it or something like that as they explain the menu. That's also another big aspect of things. And I wonder how many times you've come into contact with people that just are unaware of the issue and, uh, you know, and, and struggle to deal with it uh, at that level. Yeah. Well, you know, like, I love my pasta and often pesto sauce has pine nuts in it. Right. And that's something where, you know, if you know the ins and outs of pesto sauce, you know there are pine nuts in it. But when you just see pasta with pesto sauce on the menu, a lot of restaurants I go to don't indicate that that sauce has pine nuts in it. So you're just supposed to know pesto has pine nuts. And I mean, yeah, you're... I guess knowledgeable pasta adult is going to know, but what if you're just some 12-year-old, you know, that yeah. wants pasta, you order that, and then you're being sent to the hospital. I think there just needs to be clearer guidelines on a really standard, uniform basis. And uh, I'm interested to hear what John said about like what that solution really looks like. Well, that interview with John Wood of Kitchen Cut is coming up next here on the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. You're going to want to hear his analysis and his expertise on these topics. This is what he does. He advises restaurants in these types of issues. And so he's kind of the authority when it comes to this sort of thing. Also, he's got an awesome British accent. So stick around <laughs> for that. John Wood of Kitchen Cut is coming up next. Thank you, Daniel, for joining me on the Market Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. Of course, always down to talk about my nut allergy. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, coming up next, John Wood of Kitchen Cut. All right. Now, let me welcome on to the Food and Beverage Podcast, John Wood. He's the co-founder and director of Kitchen Cut, and he has uh, 30 years of high-end international experience in hotels and some of the best hotels and restaurants in the world. John, thank you so much for joining me on the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast today. 
Thank you for asking me. Yes, that's very kind of you. Uh, we are always happy to talk to you. I know that you've been on the podcast before. Um, and today we're going to be talking about creating consistent allergen management in the food and beverage industry and, and kind of the challenge that that creates. Um, and, and I want to start off by asking, uh, just in your opinion, do you think that uh, that management of this sort of thing, uh, that, that rules and regulations should be implemented by each restaurant individually, or should that be left up to a governing body to best... Uh, to best administer the rules as far as how restaurants should handle uh, potential allergens? Well, I, I think it, it varies a lot, you know, globally how that works. I and mean, there is there is very strict legislation being put into Europe uh, back in 2014. Um, and they are, it's a very tough one to manage. Um, and they are trying to get the, the health authorities to do that across Europe as best as they possibly can. Uh, however, they're quite stretched already just managing, you know, hygiene and things like that. And, and they're trying to make it as part of their remit. Um, I think it really is a responsibility of two. I think it is the restaurants uh, need to have a responsibility to, uh, you know, manage their allergens correctly. But I think it's also good to, you know, for, for um, the government to actually try to then either support that uh, with you know uh, trying to help and guide people through that as well, but also manage that. So people that are ignoring you know uh, allergens uh, are then being sort of pulled up and reminded of the importance of looking at it. So I think it's 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 a dual responsibility. I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I I understand what you're saying there, and um, so you've you've spent thirty years, you know, thirty plus years in this industry, as I mentioned while I read your resume earlier. Um, does it feel like this is a bigger problem now than maybe it used to be in the past? Oh, huge! I mean, it, it, every year it is increasing. Um, you know, wherever I travel in the world and whoever I'm working with, you know, when I started thirty seven years ago, you would get, you know, you would serve a banquet for a thousand people. You would have one vegetarian and nobody else. Nobody would talk about gluten. They would talk about, you know, allergies or anything like that. And now you would, you would obviously, you know, from, from a thousand people, you would estimate 150 of those would um, have some sort of, you know, requirement, whether that be vegan or vegetarian, which is obviously a, a lifestyle a choice. But, you know, there's, there's a raft of allergen, you know, uh, that people need to cater for as well. So it's getting more and more and more, you know, as, as part of that. And, and, you know, predictions are it's going to, you know, it's going to double again in, in the next 10, 15 years. Yeah, so as we talk about it growing and potentially even doubling again, uh, what as you advise restaurants, as you talk and consult um, with these people that, that run restaurants, what type of protocols would you recommend should go into place in the preparation of food? We all know that the uh, that the kitchen area can at times be uh, you know a, a chaotic dance, you know that is very precise, but also at the same time a little bit of controlled chaos. So, what type of protocols would you recommend going into place? Uh, in in food preparation? I think where it starts for me is um, in education. It is, you know, the, these um, the allergens are becoming more and more prevalent, you know, in the in industry and uh, vendors are really have a responsibility to um, supply that data to restaurants and hotels. And then, you know, it is then the, 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 the restaurants and, and restaurateurs and the chefs and the executive chefs and head chefs then uh, have a responsibility to educate the team and, and make them realize the importance of if we do cross-contaminate here, uh, there is a possibility we could kill somebody. 
you know, and, and have catastrophic, you know, effects on the on the business. So there is an education uh, part of it, uh, and not just saying right, we need to stop, you know, chopping nuts on these boards. Um, but there needs to be a process to let people understand from an operations point of view, both chefs and the service teams and the wait staff to actually understand um, the importance of you know uh, allergens and be able to manage that. And also from a protocol in a kitchen point of view, like you say, it is, you know, in many kitchens, it's mayhem. There's lots going on, lots happening. But if you have structure and processes in place and you say, right, either we want, I've worked with a lot of kitchens, you know, over the years, and a lot of them, you know, say we want to be nut free. So obviously that's one way of dealing with probably one of the most dangerous ones, which is, which is nuts and peanuts uh, as part of that. But even if you say, you know, uh, what we want to do is, is the best we possibly can try to contain nuts within the pastry section. And we don't want to bring it out, you know, into the main kitchen or into the cold kitchen or other parts of it. So it's just about, for me, number one thing is awareness um, and training and getting that information from your vendors. Um, um, and then it's about training the people within the operations to, to realize the importance of segregation of high-risk uh, products like gluten and peanuts and nuts and, and shellfish and dairy products and being really, really sure that you've got proper recipe specifications in place and the importance of people adhering to those. And it's not just, oh, we need to be creative, we need to make food and throw it all together and, and part of that. We need to understand that we have you know, um, a lot of people. I mean, there's 15 million Americans have food allergies. 5.9 million children under the age of 18 have allergens across the US. So, you know, thinking of those numbers, you want to be able to um, ensure that your customers are, are feeling safe when they come to eat with you. Uh, and that's really, really important to, to manage that. So it's, it's an education part from the vendors through to the chefs, through to the wait staff, and then just ensuring that people are understanding the importance of that and controlling that. Yeah, and you mentioned the wait staff, and I wanted to talk a little bit more specifically about how you go into uh, training wait staff, you know, as they interact with customers, just to make sure that they're approaching those issues uh, when necessary at the table in the first place. Yeah, I think the, the common practice, which you, you see a lot in restaurants now, is, you know, the wait staff will say, you know, pres present the menus, talk about the specials. And we need to ask, does anybody have any allergens at the table? And making note of that is absolutely critical. And what is also then important is, is the wait staff having the, the access to your entire menu uh, and be able to know where the allergens sit within those dishes. So they can make recommendations for gluten-free or nut-free people or people that want to avoid any particular type of allergen. And they, they know where to go with that. And again, education. It's about informing, training, and educating the wait staff so they can approach the table you know, uh, and speak to the customers with confidence. And should they need to refer back to a manual or to an electronic version, which is what we provide at Kitchen Cut, they can refer back to that and then say to people, yes, these are the dishes we can uh, guarantee that there's no dairy products or shellfish or fish inside those or whatever your allergen is that you have. And would you recommend there always being somebody on the floor of a restaurant or maybe at least a couple of people who are trained in what to do in emergency situations? Like, would you recommend somebody always having an EpiPen on them or something along those lines? 
I think it's I think it's absolutely critical that you need to prepare yourself from a restaurant operation point of view for all circumstances, you know, and, and, and to be able to understand that. And, and allergens being a particular one that's important when you're eating in restaurants. So having an EpiPen or having, you know, something there, but in a controlled environment. You don't just want to hand out EpiPens to every member of staff and say, just go and stab people with it if they, if they start looking at um, that's probably not advisable, but it a structured process of, of, uh, of actually saying, right, who are we going to have the responsibilities? Who are we going to have on, on shift that, that, that we got the, uh, that's got the skill and the knowledge? And if we need to invest in some training to, to understand what we do with an EpiPen, we need to do that. And I think it's the responsibility of the, the, the operations to have that in place so they, they can um, look after their customers should something happen. They can deal with it immediately. So you mentioned earlier just how many uh, people have allergens these days, how many people experience it. You had some incredible statistics about that. And I'm wondering, some restaurants have started to adopt a really hardline stance towards, uh, I'm sorry, this particular item is going to be in this dish and we just can't accommodate every particular request. So that being the case, we're just going to do no substitutions. We can't take any of these things out or put anything in, and it just is going to be simple, and this is how it's going to be. But with so many people having foodborne allergens these days, you'd have to think that uh, that severely limits, uh, to a certain extent, their customer base, the number of people that can come into the restaurant and just freely order something off the menu and, and, and not be affected by it. So would you recommend that to a particular restaurant, or would you say uh, it's better to be flexible and, and to, to have some type of understanding as far as uh, a customer's allergens goes? Um, I would say you can be flexible, but it needs to be controlled flexibility. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you have proper recipe specifications and you know where those allergens sit within that dish, let's say a burger, let's keep something nice and simple. So you have a burger that you, you've got and you know the only place that gluten sits within inside that, recipe, uh, that particular dish is the bun. Yeah, it's a simple analogy, but you, you know, if somebody says, I, I'm gluten-free, but what can you recommend? He said, well, we can do the burger without the bun because I know there's no bread inside the patty mix and there's no bread coatings on the fries or anything like that or any gluten you know, uh, that's on the fries. So we can serve you that uh, as part of it. So I think if it's controlled flexibility – um, that is good, but that's when you need really good specifications and you need the, the transparency. A lot of uh, restaurants will say, these are the glutens inside, these are the, sorry, these are the allergens inside this dish. Um, but what we do at Kitchen Card is we take it one step further. We say, these, here is where the allergens sit inside that dish uh, attached to each of those products. So you can take something out and suddenly make a, a dish that's not gluten-free, gluten-free by removing one of those items. So it's about sort of, you know, having the flexibility that, but you should only do that if you have controlled flexibility and the people on the floor have the knowledge to know what can be removed to make that dish safe for somebody to eat. Absolutely. Hey, John, where can people uh, find more about Kitchen Cut and, and learn more about what you guys do? Um, if you go on to www.kitchencut.com, uh, you can learn about what we do. We, we're a full back of house management system, but we've always been obsessed, you know, since we started about allergens and, and you know, having giving people the control. And the problem is, is it's it's not so much we look at it from both sides. Is 
We want to protect your customers that are coming in, but also give you an easy way to do it because managing allergens is not an easy task to do administrationally. And a lot of people actually you know, don't do it very well because it's very time consuming to do that. And if you're changing menus regularly, what we do is we provide an electronic platform that does all that automatically for you. So we're trying to make it easier for operators to make sure they're complying with legislation or making sure that they're giving the data right to their, their customers, but also from a, um, an, an operations point of view is making sure that that is easy to administrate as well. So that is absolutely critical. Absolutely. So that is John Wood. There's a reason that this isn't his first time on the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. It's because he's the best. John, thank you so much for joining us uh, today on the F- Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. Thank you very much. And I hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you again to John Wood for joining us on the podcast today. We certainly appreciate getting his expertise on these particular topics. Coming up next is my colleague Daniel Litwin's conversation with Emily Shy. She's one of our writers here at MarketScale, and she wrote a really great piece talking about food waste around the world. As we know that populations are going to continue to explode and that the population of the world is going to continue to grow, one of the big issues around the world isn't so much food production as much as it is food waste. We end up throwing away a lot of food, and that could go to feed other people. So as we look around the world and we look at exploding populations coming in the future, we need to have a better conversation about how do we reduce food waste. So that's what her piece was on and that's what their interview was on coming up next on the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. All right, so we're joined by Emily Shy, the writer of today's news analysis article. Emily, great to have you on the podcast. Uh, this is your first time being on the Market Scale podcast. So how are you doing today? Doing pretty well. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I love when the writing world and the podcast world of what we do at Market Scale comes together and we get to sort of, you know, knock heads and uh, get some deep insight. So I'm glad we're talking about this subject today because this is something that we've chatted on before on our podcast. But looking at you know how are businesses looking to solve this issue of food waste and especially with the global population really maxing out and i don't know if maxing out's the right word but it's definitely going to reach high billions i mean almost 10 billion by the year 2050 is what's in this article that's pretty high and that means that we need to maximize how we produce our food and how we consume our food. So, while you were writing this article, what were some of those really staggering points that stood out to you as wow, you know, this is a, a very serious issue in the industry? Yeah. Doing the research for this article, I found um very interesting. I always kind of assumed that the problem of world hunger was something that was just um nearly impossible to solve. It was kind of one of those um, like world peace kind of goals where it was like, this seems unachievable, but you know, it's a good goal to set. But um, doing research for this article, I found out um, that we actually produce globally enough food to feed all the world's hungry four times over. Wow. The problem is that we're wasting it. Which is, I mean, pretty incredible to hear. Um, what seems like the step forward for businesses? How do you, how do you go about, you know, making sure that if we're only feeding, you know, a certain amount of people, that it's 
the, I guess, a sustainable amount, right? But if we are looking to solve world hunger, you know, how do we put that food production to good use? Yeah, so there's waste basically from every step from the in the from the farm to table process. There's waste along the right. entire spectrum, um, and so basically, um, we kind of need all hands on deck with this issue. Um, there are businesses that are tackling the front end, such as um, like imperfect produce and hungry harvest um, are kind of um, trying to reproduce on a large scale, um, a sort of community supported agriculture model um, where produce is coming like directly from farms and then um, it's still getting sold even if it doesn't look the aesthetic way that we would like it to look to be in a grocery store. So um, one thing businesses can do is um, on the front end, plug in with something like that um, to make sure that the food that they're using uh, within their business or bringing in to be catered for different meals, et cetera, um, would be that they would make sure that they're investing in recovering that loss on the front end. Right. Primarily. Well, and I know that especially during the production process, a lot of the food that gets wasted is um, ugly vegetables or ugly fruit, right? The stuff that it's a carrot that has two ends and that the traditional consumer wouldn't identify and be like, oh, that carrot looks healthy, but there's nothing wrong with it. It's just not the most beautiful piece of produce. That kind of stuff often gets chucked. You know, no one eats it. It doesn't get it doesn't get put on a plate, uh, and, and and that's a focused solution that is more on the social level, right? So I think there are some solutions here that are are more about how do you improve the production process, how do you improve the distribution process, but there are some that are more like how do you reframe the public's idea of what is edible? Yes, exactly. Um, because actually, it's it's about twenty billion pounds of produce per year that's wasted. Um, which means that 24% of the water used for agriculture is used on food that is never consumed. So not only is it um, affecting the fact that this food is wasted, but it's also a waste of resources. And then it also creates a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, this food waste being put in landfills. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of businesses are actually trying to focus on reducing food waste at the at the beginning, um, which is also trying to inventory better. Um, they're trying to uh, track more closely um, their business patterns so that they're not ordering more food than is going to be sold, um, which is cutting down on a lot of waste. Um, and then also trying to donate a lot more food to people in need. Right. And explain to me a little more, uh, as you were putting this article together, what some companies were um, and what are they doing that really stood out as trying to solve this issue of food waste. Um, it could be either on the farm end, on the table end, but whatever they're doing, I'm sure it's going to help to this overall issue. So for this article, I focused um, primarily on two companies that are part of the Food Waste Reduction Alliance. I focused on Aramark, which does a lot of food for events and food in schools. Um, they actually um, have 
really cut down their waste um, in part of that inventory process. They also make sure they track their waste in 100% of their locations, um, which is very smart because if you don't track it, you're, you're not really paying attention to it. You're not always seeing it. And you're, that's the first step to doing something about it. Um, they also have implemented a program in 86% of their higher education uh, locations, wherein they encourage students to go trayless. Um, so they'll pick up their lunch, but not use a lunch tray, uh, which reduces waste uh, about two ounces per person. Well, I mean, it sounds like there's still a lot of work to be done to solve this issue. But, uh, you know, I, I think people should definitely give this article a read, inform themselves if they didn't know that you know, there is such a tremendous amount of work to still be done on curbing food waste. Um, but it's always good to get this insight. So, Emily, thank you for hopping on the podcast and informing us a little bit more about the research you did for this article. And uh, you know, hopefully down the line, we can produce another article with some more businesses that are taking substantial steps to curb this issue. Thank you so much. Yes, it's a very important issue because it not only affects hunger, it wastes money, and it also is a gross misuse of resources. Um, So it's very important. Thank you again to Emily Shai for joining us on the Food and Beverage Podcast. And of course, you can go read her excellent piece on marketscale.com. And again, that link is in the show notes if you feel like going and checking that piece out as well. Coming up next, our correspondent Sean Heath caught up with Jeff Richards, the CEO and founder of Muala. Muala has created a series of plant-based dairy-free beverages for people that suffer from lactose intolerance. And he's going to join to talk about the move in the industry to address the surge in sensitivity to allergens and the impact that these alternatives to dairy are having on the industry as a whole. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation as we continue that theme, uh, staying on that allergen-type topic today in today's episode. So coming up next, Jeff Richards from Muala talking to our core. Correspondent Sean Heath. Now, I know how incredibly busy you are, but I wouldn't normally think that someone who works in an organic industry would be super crazy busy 24 hours a day because you think, oh, organic plants, they take a long time to grow. You got all the time in the world. That's not really the case. Tell me about the journey and the race that you kind of set yourself on founding this company. Yeah, well, it's it's funny that you mentioned that. Um, we, uh, you know, what I always say is that you know our products have to stay stay refrigerated, and if we had a shelf stable product, then I would be on vacation, uh, you know, four days out of the week. But I've got a product that's expiring and uh, and uh, only lasts a couple months, so that's there's a constant, uh, you know, fire under under my foot to to keep moving. So there's not a lot of time to relax. Um, and you have yeah. a personal, you have a personal sort of drive to start this company, don't you? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, I, uh, grew up, uh, you know, in, a, in, in Texas and, um, went, to, went to Baylor here and started my career in finance. And so, um, I was a desk jockey and not frankly, still somewhat, <laughs> still somewhat am, uh, but, uh, went the investment banking route and was in finance for the better part of 10 years. Um, and you know, basically was, uh, was, uh, doing CrossFit and had a paleo diet, went through a little bit of a diet fad, uh, where I didn't eat dairy for six months. 
And when I came back and said, you know what, that's enough of that. And I started getting my, uh, you know, my, my dose of queso and, and milk and ice cream. All of a sudden I couldn't, I couldn't handle it anymore. So, um, I was about uh, 28 years old when that happened and became, uh, lactose intolerant as, as an adult I was actually, uh, diagnosed with severe lactose intolerance. And so that's kind of where, you know, the whole plant-based thing came in. Uh, Muala, my, my company is, uh, we, we make organic plant-based beverages in case we hadn't hit that yet. So it's basically, it's a dairy-free almond milk or dairy-free banana milk are our core products. So really, you know, um, the idea came from a real problem is some of the best entrepreneurial stories do. Okay. So I just, you mentioned something that I've never heard of before. You yeah. became lactose intolerant as an adult. Does that, I it's mean, a thing. that's a thing that happens. It, it has to be. Um, and you know, I, I haven't done a, you know, a, a whole bunch of research on it. a lot of people, you know, um, you know, raise their eyebrows at that, but yeah, I mean, look, I was eating cheese and ice cream and, uh, and, and putting milk in my smoothies. And, and then I didn't, I didn't have dairy for six months. And when I came back and tried it again, I got my blood tested and my, my body was, was severely lactose intolerant. It's crazy. I'm looking at the label right now for what would be my favorite product, banana milk, chocolate. Come on, man. That's not fair. Um, and I'm looking at the ingredients. You have seven ingredients in that product and a seven-year-old could pronounce every one of them. You take organic very seriously. Yeah, we do. Um, it's, you know, it's really the... Our, our spot in the market is um, I think a lot of people believe that if they're buying a plant-based product or an almond milk um, or even a dairy milk, sometimes they just assume it's organic. And part of our job um, at Muala is to educate the consumer that it's usually not. It's actually usually not the case. Um, and that's where we really find ourselves um, separating, not just in, you know, an innovative product like banana milk, but even in our almond milk, it's going to be organic and, and, and have simple ingredients. And we've really been able to carve out a niche there. There's a lot of reasons that people consider going plant-based, but the plant-based side has taken a very interesting approach in mimicking these animal-based products and doing a pretty darn good job of it. Yeah. Um, I, I would, I would have to agree with you there. And, um, you know, to hit on what you said earlier um, on the on the dairy industry, um, you know, what's yeah, what's interesting to me is that, you know, about f almost half of millennials drink um, a dairy alternative and only about, you know, a quarter of those do it because uh, they have a lactose issue like I do. Um, the rest of them do it either because it's an ethic choice, an ethics choice, or because they just prefer the flavor. And so that kind of hits on two, two of your points. Um, one being that it's becoming an ethical issue um, with the way that dairies are, are operated. And then secondly, um, it's, it's, a, it's a taste issue. It's a flavor issue. How, um, you know, some people like um, tasting the plant part of it, the soybean or the almond, but the majority of the population, they're looking for, uh, a replacement, something to take the place of uh, the the milk that they're drinking or the meat that they're eating, and so I think it's a function of price. And once the, once the price continues to come down, I think you'll see the flavor of these products like ours continue to improve to where you know you can have that potential widespread adoption of um, a, a plant based diet out of you know the more fad type environment that we're in right now. 
as more people adopt it, competition will bring the prices down. That's just economics 101. As someone who works in the industry, prices coming down is not something you're super crazy about. But <laughs> if the price comes down enough that more people adopt it, it's a win-win situation for everybody. Yeah, I would, I would have to agree. Um, you know, what's been really exciting for us has not been, um, you know, I, I don't I take that back. It's, it's, it's been very exciting to be part of Whole Foods, especially here in, in, in Texas. Um, you know, but what's been interesting and almost surprising for us is, is the conventional acceptance of, um, of our product in, into, you know, a conventional grocery store that's not heavy on the natural side. And, um, you know, it's been, and that's where it's been the most exciting is because you would expect that to be almost those to be almost the last ad adopter of our product, you know, organic almond milk. That sounds like something that's going to be on the shelves of, you know, whole foods and stay there. Um, but what we're seeing is almost that those conventional grocers, um, like an Albertsons or, um, a stop and shop are really looking to be on the bleeding edge of innovation and um and the more volume they run and the more awareness the consumer has the more demand there's going to be and that's going to yeah drive prices down you mentioned that you discovered your this intolerance your lactose intolerance at a at very young i mean well very yep. old for being diagnosed you know what i mean a very young old age <laughs> i think that 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 must be happening to a lot of people that they're starting to realize oh i'm allergic to this thing maybe when they're in high school or in college and i would imagine that those allergens are probably pretty widely spread across the population right yeah um you know i think i, I read a stat that um 5 million americans have a um have a have a a nut or a tree nut issue, I should say, a tree, tree nut allergy, um, which is a big number. Um, it's a big number and it's, and it's growing. Um, and I think that um, people are becoming more aware also um, with, with uh, um, as, as trends like plant-based and dairy-free emerge, people are just more in tune with their bodies now than they ever have been. Um, and so when I, for instance, I got, test for lactose intolerance. I got tested for um, a bunch of other things. It turns out I have a mild peanut allergy. And, and so, you know, I'm not sure that was the best news I ever got. But, you know, I think there's just a growing awareness. People want to know what they're putting in their bodies. And uh, and so, you know, there's it really benefits smaller businesses like my own that operate somewhat in, in niches sometimes. It seems like people won't change what they eat or drink until it really becomes necessary for them to do that. We don't always decide what's in our best interest. That's a big challenge, right? It is. I, I also think that um, I think that people, for the first time, you're, you're seeing that you know consumers are very willing to try new things, um, and I think a lot of that is um, you know you have to give give props to food suppliers who are putting really high quality options out there to compete with the, with the big brands, the big brands for the first time. Um, if you go to a shelf right now in the refrigerated section or in the fresh section, it is, you're not just seeing, um, you know, I'll take my own category. For example, you're not just seeing the major dairy producers. All of a sudden you're seeing like 20 different kinds of, of milk and 20 different kinds of plant-based milk. And it's, it's not because uh, 
there's no single brand winning there's a bunch of different brands winning. And so it's a really exciting environment for us to be a part of because consumers are trying new things. There's limited brand loyalty and, um, you know, but I think generally you're right. There's a, there is a, an aversion to change as human beings. We don't like to change, but there's so many cool options on the shelves right now that people get excited. They walk into a grocery store and we'll just watch people, uh, you know, I'll hide behind a, 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 a grocery cart and I'll just watch people and they stand there with their arms folded. They're, they like, look, they're shopping, you know, they're not choosing between 1% and 2% milk. They're choosing between, um, a lot of different high quality options. And so it's pretty exciting. Okay. Aside from the fact that what you just described sounds a little bit like stalking, um, <laughs> having lived in Spain for a few years, unrefrigerated milk in vacuum packs is massive. I personally cannot get past my milk coming off a shelf next to a can of beans. My, mm. If I'm buying a milk product, whether it's almond milk, it's got to come out of the, the refrigerated section. It just feels weird. I, I totally agree. And I, I think that, you know, if you ask anybody dating back the past few years, you ask somebody in the food industry, they're going to tell you, um, and you ask them where the growth is in the store, they're going to say it's on the outside, it's on the perimeter uh, in the chilled area. And I think that's going to continue. Um, but um, the big but there is now you've got Amazon involved in the food world. And and this is where, once again, things are going to be changing. Um, all of a sudden, we're shelf stable. Yeah, you're buying your milk in the middle of a grocery, uh, you know, in the, in the dry area of the grocery um, department. You know, that's not very attractive. But if you can get almond milk shipped through Amazon, it doesn't have to be refrigerated, then all of a sudden uh, that's a cost saving for you. And you maybe care, don't quite care as much whether or not it, it shows up cold if it's safe, warm. So I, it's it's a really interesting dynamic that you brought up um, because I think that you might start seeing growth in, in, the, in the shelf stable area because of Amazon. Is there one thing that you don't eat and you think, oh man, I, I miss that. Is there one specific thing? Oh man, uh, yeah, queso. Chili con queso. I'm a I'm a native Texan, and there just isn't a you know. And maybe maybe this is my calling. <laughs> maybe we need to create a second a, a sub brand. But man, if I could have dairy free queso that was like uh, you know queso we get down here in Texas, I would just start weeping. Um, that's it's crippling. Well, I'm going to put another project on your task list before I let you go, and that is dairy free, nut free. Peanut butter cookie dough ice cream. Boom. <laughs> Make that happen, my friend. Without any of those ingredients. <laughs> yes, please. I would appreciate that greatly. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. Thank you to everyone who has listened to this one. We certainly do appreciate you listeners. Thank you to my guests today, John Wood of Kitchen Cut, Jeff Richards, the CEO of Muwala, and Emily Shai, the writer here at Market Scale. Thank you to my colleague, Daniel Litwin, for joining me to talk about his food allergy as well. As always, if you enjoyed the content on this week's episode, be sure to head over to MarketScale. Check out all of the great written and podcast content that we have there for your enjoyment. There's much, much more. And also, we would appreciate it if you shared this content with your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, other people in the industry that you think might enjoy it. Please feel free to share this around and to leave us a nice rating on uh, whatever platform that you are listening to this on. That definitely helps us out as well. 
Again, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We will be back with another episode shortly. But until then, I've been your host, Tyler Kern. We'll talk again soon. Thank you.